0: once again to principles of environmental toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Today's lecture is going to be a special topic lecture. Uh, This special topic is endocrine disruption. This is a subject that we've dealt with in uh, many instances in the course thus far. We've talked about it in terms of uh, target organs. We've talked about it as well in terms of some regulatory science and primarily with the advent in the late 1990s of the Food Quality Protection Act, which was the first body of U.S. law and regulation that actually dealt with endocrine disruption and the potential for endocrine disruption in terms of the review of chemicals that are allowed to be used in food and agriculture. The context of today's lecture is to go back again in some of the environmental history of endocrine disruption, an environmental history that actually, in, in my readings, uh, really started in the 1950s and with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962, where she, in fact, addressed some of the potential concerns about disrupting a system, a very responsive system, that helps make up who we are. When talking about the endocrine system, uh, I always try to uh, tell students to think about yourself uh, perhaps uh, at at, uh, the county fair or uh, at a roller coaster ride or a a Ferris wheel. Uh, You're with somebody, a significant other, uh, a girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, somebody who you care about. And yet, the emotional, the warm feelings that you feel being close to someone special like that, uh, as well as the thrill of the rides, uh, what we 're feeling in a certain sense are our hormones, uh, our flight or fight in terms of the uh, hormone rush, the adrenaline rush that we get with a thrill, the warm sort of feelings that we get being again with someone special. This is our endocrine system at work; it is a system that is supposed to be responsive to our needs. In a certain sense this chain of biochemical reactions with receptors is a part of who we are. Not only a part of who we are on a day-to-day basis but who we become and what I mean by that is how we develop especially in utero given the potential for exposure in early stages of embryogenesis to some chemicals that may disrupt the endocrine pathways. This is the context, this is the background of the concern in environmental toxicology for chemicals, synthetic and natural. Uh, We all have heard the term phytoestrogens, like soy products. These chemicals that may have a pathway to change receptor communication in human beings and as well in wildlife. This is the subject of our special topic lecture. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to try to do is have you understand some of the scientific basis of the uh, concept of endocrine disruption. We'll focus a little bit more perhaps on estrogenic effects because of the potential impacts to wildlife that are exposed, and especially in aquatic ecosystems. But we'll talk about this as being one of the major subsets of the endocrine system disruption. We'll explore the endocrine disruption hypothesis. In terms of wildlife observations in contaminated environments, what led scientists uh, to come up with a hypothesis that, in fact, some of these synthetic chemicals were, in fact, operating as hormonal influences in terms of receptor activation for some of the estrogenic responses that we have observed in nature. We'll review some of the classic case studies that have increased uh, recent awareness over the past decade or so. uh, In the public and as well uh, uh, the uh, uh, private or I'm sorry the political sector uh, when for example we have observations of uh, uh, fish sex change in the Potomac River just outside of Washington DC in a certain sense it serves up a tremendous uh, close and personal relationship the environment of the people that work in various agencies and also uh, in federal government Uh, There's a story about uh, some of the earlier days in the late 1980s of some USGS researchers that had to talk about endocrine disruption of uh, otters, and we'll review that as one of the case studies uh, today. We'll try to understand uh, some of the recent research and policy issues uh, related to environmental endocrine disruption, and we'll do this, in many of these learning objectives uh, by viewing a, a video. This is a frontline uh, news program that identified, uh, and this comes to us from about the late 1990s, uh, some of the earlier players, uh, some of the major scientists, some of the uh, discussions that were associated with trying to establish support or denial of the endocrine disruption hypothesis. We'll then uh, finish up with some of the future pathways and exploring some of these pathways in the analysis of uh, endocrine disruption. We'll review uh, some of the major papers that have come out over the past five years or so that uh, perhaps paint a disturbing picture of the potential of chemicals in the ecosystem typically chemicals uh, that come from our own personal waste stream, such as antibiotic soaps, that have the potential uh, to disrupt the life cycle of uh, aquatic uh, populations. Those are some of our learning objectives. As a background, we need to talk about what endocrine disruptors are, and these are simply chemicals that have the capacity to interfere with the endocrine system function. Recall, as we introduced in the course thus far, that the endocrine system consists of some of the glands and some of the hormones that they produce and we focus on the pituitary gland, the thyroid gland, the adrenal glands uh, that occur in our kidneys and we focus as well on the female ovaries and the male testes when we talk about endocrine disruptors. We have to recall that hormones are biochemicals and as chemicals uh, they can uh, themselves be uh, 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 interfered with by other chemicals that perhaps have the same size, shape, electron distribution. Uh, We have referred to the lock and key uh, receptor-based response in this course, Uh, the hormones being this chemical key and the receptor being the lock. And what we have with endocrine disruptors is chemicals, typically synthetic chemicals, that have a similar shape, size, and functionality such that they can become a false key in this uh, metaphor of lock and key. These chemicals, these hormones, are produced by the endocrine glands and they do travel throughout our body. Um, They do cause responses in other parts of our body. So when your muscles tense because uh, you're on a roller Coaster ride, it's because of your hormones, your uh, adrenaline that is being pumped in on flight and fight. Uh, it's part of the thrill that we get out of the experience. Now, the hormones of primary concern in terms of endocrine disruption have to do with those hormones that not just thrill us, but that can change who we are in terms of our especially secondary sexual characteristics. Uh, These include estrogen and androgen and some of the thyroid hormones that dictate uh, body shape, body size. We're going to take a quick trip here into the world of video. This is a a video that was produced uh, in about 1996, I recall. It's called Fooling with Nature. It's from the PBS show Frontline.
1: During the following program, look for Frontline's web markers, which lead you to more information at our website at www.pbs.org.
2: Funding for Frontline is provided by annual financial support from viewers like you. With additional funding for this program from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and these additional funders.
1: You either have to accept the fact that animals are in fact sentinels and indicators for our own species, or don't accept it.
3: The alligators are sentinels, as are birds, as are fish, and so we don't ignore that. But if we want to look at human effects, let's look at humans.
4: When I look at this as a scientist, I see an interesting hypothesis, needs further investigation. As a wife and a mother, when I look at this issue, I get a little bit nervous.
5: Nor is it comforting for a woman to realize that it takes only one very low dose of an endocrine-disrupting chemical to change the course of sexual development of her baby.
2: An explosive environmental issue has become a major new law, and the debate rages over whether public policy has gotten ahead of science.
4: This is the first time since the passage of the Toxic Substances Control Act more than 20 years ago that
5: Congress has spoken on the issue of testing chemicals. There is enough evidence to take certain chemicals off the market today, and we should.
6: Everything is at stake for the industry on this one. This is entirely new for them. I mean, it was a day of reckoning that they didn't want to see. And everything depends on what they find out with endocrine disruption. Tonight on Frontline, the new threat from man-made chemicals. Are
2: we doing too little about it or too much?
1: The three best jobs on earth. It's kind of like the adventurer, the artist, the detective. In that you never have all the pieces of the puzzle. You are using your own creativity to form the picture. And that the adventure part is to
2: find things that people haven't found before. Blue Gillette searches for alligators on the lakes of Central Florida. You pass them on the stump. Alligators
1: are nocturnal. You go out with a very powerful flashlight, a Q beam, and you look for eyes shine. Alligator eyes shine back to your red and um, you approach them. It's like working with any large animal. I don't care if we're talking horses, cows, or alligators. Now, um, when you deal with a large animal, there is an
7: element of danger. He's a big one. See the head? See the head? See the body? Seven feet. That was about nine feet.
8: Nine
2: feet. 10 years ago, Gillette was puzzling over why the alligator birth rate was in decline and why females were not laying good eggs. You can see how different they are. And we tried
1: to erase, if you will, or or remove the typical things we thought might be involved, that is, changes in the moisture of the nest, or the temperature of the nest, or, or aspects of female biology or male biology. And we started to realize something else was going on. But I couldn't put it in context. I was finding these abnormalities. We had the observations of my colleagues in the field of, of problems with the eggs and population declines. And so we had all of these pieces of information, but they appeared to be disparate pieces of information. They didn't even fit together into a, into a puzzle that I could understand.
2: 1,500 miles north of Gillette, Scientist Theo Colborne was equally puzzled by the wildlife studies of scientists working on the Great Lakes. She thought a solution might lie in bringing their findings together.
5: I was working on a book on the state of the environment of the Great Lakes. And I had pulled all this literature together. Lots of papers, you know, fellows working in Canada, people working in the United States, one out on Lake Superior's, others over way over on Lake Ontario. None of them knew what the other was doing, you know.
2: Coborn was a grandmother with a background in pharmacy when she returned to school and got her PhD at the age of 58. As a scientist for the World Wildlife Fund, she began to notice drastic changes in animal populations.
5: I sat in a wonderful position where I pulled all this information together and I sat looking at it and I said, there's something wrong here. It began to fall out that there were serious problems of actually population declines, population crashes. The youngsters didn't hatch or if they did, they didn't look good, birth defects. Behavioral studies began to come out, the birds weren't behaving right. Females and females pairing, the male birds not being territorial, and male fish with both female and male reproductive organs. All of these things fall under the purview of the endocrine system, It was amazing. And then, of course, the most important thing was that cancer was not the problem. And, you know, we were thinking cancer is the big bugaboo. This is, this was going to be the be-all and the end-all. This is where we'd find our answers for both wildlife and human populations. What was the problem was that these effects were being seen in the youngsters, for the offspring of the animals, not in the adult animals.
2: Colborne concluded that certain chemicals disrupt embryonic growth, and they do it by mimicking or blocking the body's own natural hormones. They're called Endocrine Disruptors.
1: And it was all of a sudden, bam! It was one of these incredible experiences when you realize I have hormonal abnormalities, I have possibly a contaminated lake. I know I have a top predator that accumulates contaminants
2: and then it all just kind of came together as a hypothesis. Based on Colborne's hypothesis, Lou Gillette shifted his research to hormones and was surprised to discover in male alligators a marked reduction of penis size in those exposed to contaminants.
8: Male.
1: And the hypothesis is is that multiple chemicals in the environment trick the body, trick this developing embryo into thinking that it's getting a signal, a normal signal, or in fact it can actually block the normal signal so you get an abnormal signal. And in so doing, you get an abnormal embryo. It may have arms and ears and legs in the right spot, but it's not functioning normally. There you go,
8: sweetie. If this endocrine disruptor hypothesis is true, is accurate, then the implications for human species and virtually every other species on Earth that is high up in the food web that gets exposed to these chemicals at significant levels It's quite frightening because what we are really doing is we're fooling around with the long-term potential of the species both on a social level and on a biological level.
2: Jim Ludwig has been studying the effects of contaminants on wildlife in the Great Lakes for over three decades. His father did it before him.
8: An example of the embryonic sensitivity is this little guy right here. He has no eyes. Now, there's a very, very narrow time window, about four hours long, during the development of this little cormorant, when the eyes had to be stimulated to differentiate. Very specific signal, this guy never got it. That's the kind of disruption that we're talking about, and the kind of loss of potential. Once the software is misprogrammed, once the eyes are left out of the animal, you can't go back and put them in. There's no way to fix it. Once the potential, the IQ potential, is shaved off a child, you can't put it back in. That's the key to this. That's why endocrine disruption is so important to understand.
1: And you can take, for example, a metaphor that many have used, the classic idea of the player piano. You have this sheet of music. It has a bunch of holes in it. It has a very specific pattern. And even though the pattern may vary slightly, depending upon the individual, the same music comes out the other end. But now what happens is, let's say, you have environmental contaminants, or you have natural compounds that come in, and they put extra holes in the sheet, or they actually tape up or glue up some of those holes. Sometimes you have the same basic melody, but all the accompanying parts have been changed. The question is, is have we stretched that that music or stretched that sheet to the point where the music is no longer even recognizable?
2: If true, Colborne's theory would mean a radical shift in the way we evaluate the safety of chemicals. But some scientists remain skeptical.
3: Well, I think if we want to look at human effects, let's look at humans. We've got human data. Let's not look at alligators.
2: One scientist sharply critical of the hypothesis is Dr. Stephen Safe of Texas A&M.
3: The alligators in Lake Apopka are living in a lake which bordered, uh, you know, an industrial chemical site. There was leakage into the lake. There was contamination and problems with alligators. This isn't new. Uh, We've had wildlife problems in many lakes, in many regions, long before the alligators ever suffered. And this is important, and that's one of the reasons many of these chemicals were either banned or restricted in use.
2: As a toxicologist, Safe asserts the fundamental rule that a chemical's toxicity depends on the amount of exposure to it, or as the saying goes, the dose makes the poison. He argues that at normal environmental levels, endocrine disruptors are too weak to harm humans.
3: But in terms of the human effects, uh, that's another story. Are we seeing anything in humans that we can relate to these chemicals? And I don't see a lot. So what's all this fuss about endocrine disruption? Well, I think the fuss occurred because of a number of things that happened around the period of 19. 92, 93. And what happened is that we had alligator penises shortening, and that's very popular, uh, as you well know. We had a paper published indicating indicated that there was a 50% decline in sperm counts worldwide. And then there were a couple small studies published, which led to a, hi- a hypothesis that organochlorines and xenoestrogens were a contributing factor to breast cancer. So all those things came together in 1992, 93, and it was hypothesized, not proven, hypothesized that maybe there's a problem.
4: I think endocrine disruption gets attention because it scares people. I think that's the basis for it. When you talk about teeny weenies and alligators, or you talk about increased breast cancer in people, that concerns people.
2: Linda Birnbaum heads the Human Health Research Program at the EPA's lab in North Carolina.
4: Hey, Barney. Got something to show me? Yeah.
2: Forty of the scientists in her lab are studying endocrine disruption. ...versus your control
4: And that's exactly opposite of what we might have predicted. could be. I don't know. It's, it's not what I thought would happen.
2: No, I don't know to be the other way around, obviously.
4: I've been interested in chemicals that affect hormone systems for more years than I care to <laughs> <laughs> recount. but. My expertise has to do with the dioxins and the PCBs, which are very, very potent at altering hormonal systems. I usually say, I don't know a hormone system that dioxin doesn't like to disrupt. There is some general scientific consensus that effects on hormones and hormone systems may play a role in some bad things that have happened in the wild to certain fish populations to certain bird populations to certain wild mammal populations maybe to amphibians or reptiles we really don't know but when it comes to people are there endocrine effects going on from environmental levels of chemicals in people I really don't think we know the answer how many of you have children how many of you have a uterus how many of you have a uterus that works I'm glad I could add some humor to all of this. Um, I don't have a uterus. I'm missing the top third of my vagina. I don't have my fallopian
5: tubes. I don't have my cervix. Um,
2: Scientists have known since the 1970s that substantial doses of some synthetic chemicals can interfere with the endocrine system, sometimes with devastating human effects. One clear cut case is the drug diethylstilbestrol, Or DES. Pepperoni. We
5: don't have any
4: pepperoni.
2: Susan Helmerich is one of its victims.
4: DES really has defined my life in some ways. I developed clear cell adenocarcinoma of the vagina uh, at the age of 21. I was almost 22, right after I graduated from college, and I had had gynecological problems my whole teenage life and never really knowing what was wrong but something was wrong something wasn't right
2: like millions of other american women from the 40s to the 60s susan helmrich's mother took des during her pregnancy des moms believed the drug would prevent miscarriages instead decades later it is wreaking havoc with many of their children
4: so at the age of 21 and a half i had a radical hysterectomy vaginectomy lymph nodes were removed um, and my vagina was reconstructed with my colon
2: Helmrich has since adopted two children
4: I think I worry more for my kids because I think that what we are exposed to as as young children is going to have the the greatest and the longest impact on our lives
2: DES was a massive dose of an endocrine disruptor But it led scientists to wonder if hormonal messages could unintentionally be scrambled by synthetic chemicals used in everyday life.
8: We don't have to prove the general case that endocrine disruption is a health threat. Uh, Diethylstilbestrol did that for us. Absolutely, clearly, cleanly, no questions asked. That was a really nasty experience. I think it, one thing that's really good that's happened is that as this endocrine disruptor hypothesis has been put forward, it stopped us from spending all our money looking at cancer in adults. And it focused our attention on developing embryos and young. Because that's where these chemicals are really dangerous. As a scientist, I would love to be able to wait for proof of everything before acting. But in this particular situation, because we're dealing with irreversible changes to our population, I think we have to be proactive in order to get a cleaner environment where we don't run the risks of these endocrine disruptors. The alternative is to wait till the damage has happened, as occurred with PCBs and DDT, and then deal with the terrible consequences of that.
2: Jim Ludwig and his colleagues believe we now face the classic public health dilemma. How do you make effective policy to protect human health in the absence of complete scientific proof? History provides one example. In the Great London Cholera Outbreak of 1854, physician John Snow, working alone, mapped the spread of the disease in one neighborhood and traced it back to a single water pump. Although germ theory would not be understood for more than a decade, Snow acted on a hunch and removed the handle from the pump. Snow didn't know the mechanism,
1: didn't know the cause, saw the results, but was able to do by association to be able to say, wait a minute, in this environment there is something, and I don't know what it is yet, but there's something about this environment that's causing disease in these people. If I remove that source, however way I can, then these people will get better. And sure enough, when we removed the pump handle, the disease went away. Do we wait the 10 or 20 years to come up with germ theory, or do we go and remove the pump handle? I think we remove the pump handle.
8: Clorine helps build all
1: kinds of things, like laundry boots, soccer balls, boom boxes.
2: But how do you remove the pump handle from the modern world? Do you ban chemicals? And which ones? There are at least 70 chemicals suspected of being endocrine disruptors used in everything from pesticides to plastics. Banning chlorine alone would affect 45% of American industries. And no
1: chlorine means that many of the cosmetics and perfumes we're used to would vanish.
8: Probably 40% of the drugs that are manufactured in this country for things like antihistamines and you name it, all sorts of different things, a huge number of those depend on chlorinated precursors in order to be manufactured if you did the simple thing which would be to ban chlorine use in the united states you would be banning forty percent of the drugs in this country and that is a stupid thing to do
9: since the beginning of time Man has faced feast or famine in a continual struggle. Most of us don't understand what it means not to have to be engaged in the production of food and fiber uh, on the farm level, and pesticides are a very important part of the technology that American farmers use to produce this bounty. Uh, There are risks associated with the use of any technology, I think we all know and recognize that. We need to manage those risks, but the benefits are phenomenal.
4: We're dealing with chemicals that have real benefits chemicals that are important to how we live our life and to say that we should just eliminate those chemicals may not be the most reasonable approach.
3: In terms of organochlorine compounds, the EPA and our regulatory agencies have already acted. I don't know that there's that much more we can do except to be even more vigilant and no one's saying we're going to use these chemicals and throw them into the environment. They're either banned or restricted. So you know, what What? What do we have to act on right now? Uh, I don't know. Name me a chemical. Name me a chemical.
5: Name a chemical and EPA will act? That's interesting. Look at the chemicals that EPA has pulled off the market. The only thing they pulled off was DDT, PCBs, and a few pesticides. Nothing else has come off the market. I could give you a list that would blow you away of chemicals that we know are not safe, but they're still being released into the environment. Steve's statement is not correct. The mothers whose babies have been and are being exposed to these chemicals in the womb had no choice. We now know enough to inspire grave concern about the fate of future generations. Because Colborne's
2: findings galvanized the environmental community. Yet when she and the proponents of the hypothesis pushed for legislation, they faced a skeptical anti-regulation Congress. But they were about to gain an unexpected ally. Alphonse D'Amato is the Republican senator from New York, whose approval ratings by environmental groups have sometimes sunk to zero.
8: It became rather difficult for some in my party to, to, to oppose what made common sense. And if I was willing to stand up and do this and take on the stand, how could they afford not to join? So I, I think sometimes it pays to be able
7: to go in the face of the, of the current. We
2: want to know the current D'Amato's constituents had organized to find out why Long Island had one of the highest breast cancer rates in the country.
10: So we decided we would take this challenge on ourselves. And uh, we became angry. And we said, okay, kids, this is it. Let's not talk about our tumors and the size of them and sit around in support groups. Let's learn how to lobby. And let's get started. Never did I think that my entire life would be surrounded by cancer.
2: Jerry Barish had read of a study linking an endocrine disruptor with breast cancer. As a founding member of One in Nine, a women's breast cancer group, she set out to raise money for further testing.
10: I remember saying to Dr. Broda at the time, I said, well, how do we get this money? I mean, you know, we're going to have to go to Congress. And that was my first awakening into the political arena. Dr. Broda said, stop. Understand what I'm telling you. You don't mix politics and science. Doesn't work. Keep the politicians out of our test tubes. And at that point, I looked at my partner that I was with, and I said, Guess what, Fran? They're going to learn. It's going to mix. And the next day, we went to Senator DeMotta. You know, who who are you? And we said, breast cancer activist. And they said, Uh-huh. They literally stormed
8: the office. <laughs> they, uh, some of them I've known for years. I've never seen them in that setting. They were determined. They held me hostage. We came in, and we said, Listen,
10: are we at war? He said, No. Does it look like we're going to go to war? He said, no. I said, look at all that money that's sitting in the Department of Defense, doing nothing. You want
8: uh, up to $200 million? Yes. I said, we're going to lose. That's okay. We'll take names. We'll see who voted with us and who voted against us. And they did.
2: Barish's efforts paid off when Congress appropriated Department of Defense money for breast cancer research. And three years later, when President Clinton signed the Food Quality Protection Act, and amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act. The laws required new ways to test if chemicals are endocrine disruptors.
5: I was amazed, believe me, I don't think any of us working in the field even knew this was going to happen. But it's got the process moving and that's important. Cong- Congress did something right. <laughs> it got the process started. We have to take advantage of that. You know, basically, that's how you move forward. You take advantage of opportunities when they arise. This may never happen again.
8: It just called out and cried out for enactment uh, that even those who really oppose it, the major chemical companies and others, said, we better let this one go.
4: One, One, I just have a question for clarification, just to understand.
8: Lynn Goldman oversees
2: toxic substances for the EPA.
4: This is the first time since the passage of the Toxic Substances Control Act more than 20 years ago that Congress has spoken on the issue of testing of chemicals. Chemicals that might be in our food, that might be in in sources of drinking water, and that we would use specific tests so that we can make sure there aren't impacts on the endocrine system. That's a very fundamental change for the kind of legislation we've had in the past
8: My answer to that is your understanding is correct.
0: The battle
2: over the future of billions of dollars worth of products would now be fought here in an EPA committee called EDSTAC, the Endocrine Disruptor Screening and Testing Advisory Committee.
8: How do we put them all together? There is no magic formula. But we want to get.
2: EDSTAC has been mandated by Congress to come up with a screening program for endocrine disruptors by the summer of 1998.
1: Yeah, Yeah, a couple points.
2: Congress was absolutely appropriate,
4: saying that we need to determine whether endocrine disruption is a problem. However, Congress was not very helpful to the scientists when Congress told us how to do it.
3: Good evening. Um, my name is Ed Sabo and uh, I'm the New York State Coordinator for the Chlorine Chemistry Council. My name
4: is Diana Hinchcliffe. I'm the Executive Director of the Alliance of Chemical Industries of New York I'm State. We are. And
6: I'm here representing American Cyanamid Company. And it was tonight. beyond shock when the Food Quality Protection Act passed the House unanimously, passed the Senate unanimously. What happened to their friends? Their friends voted against them.
2: Don Forsyth was the head of government affairs for Sandoz Agro and headed the pesticide industry's first committee on endocrine disruption.
6: The industry was reeling. I've never seen anything like it. What happened to all that political money, the campaign contributions, the soft money, years of contributing to Republicans and a couple of Democrats from intercultural uh, states, The first statement that I ever saw the industry make was, we are deeply concerned about uh, women with breast cancer. We feel compassion for them. We will do any research, any study that's necessary to find out what's happening. And I believed it. And here I was, I'd been in the industry for three years. I truly believed that. In a
2: 1993 press release, National Agricultural Chemicals Association President Jay Vroom Called for new studies on the causes of breast cancer. But seven months later, he urged defeat of Senator D'Amato's breast cancer amendment, which would mandate additional studies for estrogenic pesticides.
6: This is a confidential memo that's sent to the the chemical companies themselves. This, where we are ready to conduct additional tests, is the news release. It's the, the difference between what they say publicly and what they say privately.
9: Well, I I think you've taken uh, the internal memoranda out of context. Uh, What we were opposed to in both the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Food Quality Protection Act was taking one specific health endpoint and putting that into law. The specific reference to breast cancer with regard to endocrine disruption seemed to us to be inappropriate. I don't think there's any real disconnect between you know, those two statements.
6: The problem with industry is that it's either their science or it's no science.
9: I'm not sure that that's an accurate representation of our industry's commitment to safety and stewardship of our products, uh, and I would disagree with that observation.
1: You know a dog, Forsythe? I do. What do you think of her?
9: I think she is an intelligent and committed individual who sees some issues differently than I do. Did
1: she do good work for the pesticide industry when she was there?
9: She did.
6: They're used to this constant battle with environmentalists. The thing that happened with endocrine disruption, however, is that you brought women's groups into the picture. When you have the women's health coalition on one side and the environmentalists on the other, you have a very strong coalition. I mean, you're talking 52% of the population. Do you want to tick them off? Do you want it signed? Mm you?
5: And what
2: is your first name? In 1996, Colborne published her findings in a book called Our Stolen Future. It sent shockwaves through both science and industry, not unlike the publication more than 30 years earlier of Rachel Carson's groundbreaking work, Silent Spring, on the dangers of pesticides. Although Carson was proven largely right, critics at the time branded her emotional and alarmist, and Colborn braced herself for a similar attack.
5: I think it's been very sophisticated this time. I don't think anyone wants to stick their neck out like they did with Rachel Carson.
6: The reaction of Theo Colburn's book was amazing. When Theo's book first came out, um, industry immediately got together, formed a cohesive strategy on how to deal with that, doing a massive search of all the research that was done try and find those research papers or those issue papers that would refute what Theo had found they were hiring New York firms to track Theo to uh, be in the audience when she was speaking to environmental groups to report back to industry um, what was being said who was doing what preparing for the onslaught I and mean, they took Fields book seriously, more seriously than I've ever seen um, any issue since Rachel Carson. I
1: essentially don't
6: trust the system because every time you look into
1: it, you find that there's abuse. Because we're dealing with chemicals that are worth billions of dollars, and that kind of money
2: inherently corrupts. Professor Fred von Saal of the University of Missouri is a leading researcher in the field of developmental biology. He has pioneered work on the effects that both natural and synthetic hormones have at extremely low doses. We've been working
1: with a chemical bisphenol A. It's what polycarbonate plastics are made out of, CD's. It's the chemical they put on your teeth as a sealant. And it is a very potent estrogen. It mimics the hormone that women produce in their ovaries. That is a major coordinator of the development of fetuses, whether you're a human or a mouse.
2: Bamsal found that when he exposed a developing mouse to minuscule amounts of this plastic, it caused permanent changes in its reproductive organs. His findings were at levels 25,000 times lower than previously seen.
3: It's such a dramatic effect and he's getting effects at very, very low doses. So, you know, that that's obviously of tremendous interest, and I'm sure people are looking at it in in his mouse model and in other models. Uh, and I think it's important work.
2: One of those particularly interested in Vamsal's work is Dow Chemical, a manufacturer of bisphenol A. Dow Chemical sent a representative
1: down to my lab uh, a number of months ago and essentially asked if there were a mutually beneficial outcome that we could arrive at where I held off publishing the information about this chemical until they had repeated my studies and after repeating my studies approval for publication was received by all the plastic manufacturers. I was stunned.
2: In a letter to Frontline, Dow Chemical denies asking Vamsal to withdraw or delay publication of his research results and insists that the mutually beneficial outcome that they sought was a better understanding of the implications of Dr. Vamsal's reported research findings.
3: You've gotten significant grants from private industry over the years to do certain research. Has that affected your, your science in any way? Absolutely none at all. Uh, I don't consult with them before I publish. I've never been interfered with at all.
2: Safe estimates that 20% of his lab's funding in the last five years has come from industry.
3: You feel no pressure to produce results or look into questions that would produce the kinds of results that they want? I've, I've had no pressure whatsoever.
5: It isn't what Steve is writing. It's what Steve is out saying that's different. He is, he's one of the best scientists in the country. We've leaned on Steve Safe's work for years. He's the one who broke out the PCB congeners. He's the dioxin expert. This guy does good work in his laboratory. He's a reductionist. I think it's hard for the public to realize that science is data. or or
4: part of science is data. In some way, that's the technology aspects. And the real science comes in the interpretation. And two equally respected scientists can look at the same data and draw different conclusions. And neither one of them is necessarily wrong.
2: But with endocrine disruption, much of the debate has moved beyond the lab to be played out in the mainstream media. Some have called it science by press release. Just
1: a minute, folks. Those white shorts,
3: you need cotton
1: for them. And cotton
2: farms often use pesticides with chlorine in it. That's
3: also used for bleaching in factories. There
1: are alternatives...
2: Greenpeace produced this TV ad for a campaign against chlorine. And Colborne herself was attacked for accepting money from sympathetic foundations for the early research and promotion of her book. And some of the more precious things in life can feel the effect.
4: There has been so much hype about endocrine disruption that it makes it difficult to carry on and a reasonable scientific discourse on the topic.
2: Last year in the Wall Street Journal, Safe labeled the phenomenon one of the big health scares of the 90s. A few months later, in the New England Journal of Medicine, he attacked the entire field as paparazzi science.
3: I hope my contribution has been to put some more balance into it. And if it's not seen by balance by some people, so be it.
8: If uh, Steve feels it's paparazzi science, then I would suggest he spend some time with me on the Great Lakes. And he won't feel that way when he's done. You can sit back in the lab and do whatever you want. but come out to the real world, and you probably
3: will get a different answer.
2: At Frontline's invitation, Steve Safe joined Lou Gillette in Florida.
3: I don't think I've ever disagreed with um, alligators or any wildlife species as as an environmental indicator. And I I would agree fully with you that we have to look at them very carefully. But then we have to look at the human situation very carefully as
1: well, because we're not alligators and we're not fish or wildlife. Well, that's true. But at the same time, I think that um, it's the height of naivety. to say that uh, just because there's a wildlife problem, and we can't necessarily identify a bunch of human problems at the moment, that um, human problems may not exist.
3: Uh, Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I'm sure there are human problems, but a lot of our wildlife problems have actually decreased. We have problems in some places, but we have improvements in a lot of other places. And and I think it has to be a balanced approach.
2: Lately, Gillette has found abnormalities, not just in toxic Lake Apopka, but in far less polluted lakes.
1: The problem that we're seeing on these other lakes, and the disturbing part, is that they can't be associated with a major pesticide spill. These are lakes which we consider to be average pollution, average lakes in the state of Florida. And yes, what we're seeing there are alterations in hormones, depression of testosterone, alterations in phallus size safe may not be what we thought it was. That is, the levels that are acceptable for exposure, especially to developing embryos and to children, are not the same as, for example, exposure to an adult.
3: The alligators are sentinels, as are birds, as are fish, and so we don't ignore that. But if we want to look at human effects, let's look at humans.
2: A troubling sign of endocrine disruptors' human effects, singled out in Colborne's book, was the reported drop in sperm counts over the last 50 years. One study showed a dramatic 50% decline, prompting concern that we had inalterably threatened the very survival of our species.
1: Every man sitting in this room today is half the man his grandfather was. And the question is, is are our children going to be half the men we are?
7: I really was convinced that there was a decline in sperm counts. I mean.
8: Who wouldn't think there's a decline in sperm counts? Uh, I'm a fertility doctor, and what I see are people who are infertile all the time. And my practice is getting bigger and bigger. And uh, I actually thought that, geez, the male reproductive tract, the uh, reproductive function, was probably in a decline. And that's what that's what the impetus was to uh, to initiate our studies.
3: And what did the studies show?
8: Well, we were surprised that when we looked at sperm counts for men who really banked sperm before vasectomy, it was a good group of men to study. We looked at them from 1970 to 1994 over a 25-year period. I was surprised but there were no decline in sperm counts. There were a lot of variations from year to year, but overall there was no
4: decline in sperm counts. I think it's absolutely unclear whether or not sperm counts are declining over time in different populations. I think there are many studies that have been conducted, and some say, yes, sperm counts are going down, and others say, no, they're not going down. Scientific discovery is rarely a straight line. It's usually a winding road, and it's very hard when you embark at the beginning or even jump in at the middle to know where it's going to lead you in the end.
1: And hello, big guy. How you doing? Hey, hi. 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 Hey, he's still happy to see me. Yeah. <laughs> and stop. How you guys doing? We're doing fine. You a little nervous?
8: Yeah.
1: yeah. It's okay. It's okay for you guys to be nervous. That's your job. Right. My job is not to be nervous. We're going to take great care of them.
2: Last fall, the Centers for Disease Control reported a doubling in hypospadias. A condition in male babies in which the urethra does not come out at the tip of the penis. He's going to require, remember, the use of a little. This
5: event medication. that causes this problem can only happen between day fifty-six and eighty-four during gestation. Is when that problem is laid down. Something interfered with the hormonal message at that time to tell that penis to develop properly with the urethra.
2: Is hypospadias a sign of endocrine disruption? This boy's case was mild, but in its most severe form, differences between males and females become blurred.
4: There's fairly good agreement that in quite a number of countries, testicular cancer has increased. There is growing evidence that there is an increase in hypospadias. I think the jury is not in yet on whether or not there is a decrease in sperm count. However, this is, a, this is a hypothesis that all ties together and does make me wonder whether or not something might not be
2: happening. Something might be happening with the human effects of endocrine disruptors around the Great Lakes, where Colborne first began her research. Subject to intense cleanup and study for the last two decades, the lakes and their tributaries offer a prime testing ground for the paths of chemicals through the food chain.
1: Want to take a sample just south of the 12th Street combined sewer overflow? Okay. It's another deposition zone. We got some cement kilns and the Detroit wastewater treatment
2: plants and very top. These men are working for the EPA on the Detroit River, measuring sediment contamination left over from industrial waste.
9: Even though it looks like mud, since we're not seeing the biological activity, we we can get a good idea that there's something going on here and something's happening that could be toxic. I'm not really worried. We do a pretty good job of protecting ourselves out here with our suits and, uh, and the monitoring that we do.
2: Yet in that same river, fisherman Michael Canada catches catfish and perch to take home for dinner.
8: Well, I've been fishing... For a long time with my father ever since I was young and it never left. So I just started back at the beginning of this year when it was warmer. So I'm bringing my sons. They get them into the sport of it.
2: They kind of likes it. Kennedy eats the fish in spite of EPA and state warnings that they may be contaminated.
8: Well, a lot of people say you know don't eat fish out of the Detroit River. And I you know. To me, I think that's just the chance, you want, you, I mean, a lot of people are going to have to take, you know, because the water is not clean either that you drink out your faucet. I didn't have no problem with the perch that I ate. It was good. From that piece?
10: Yeah.
2: But there are indications that eating fish with PCBs and other contaminants may have long-term hidden health effects, and not just on reproductive systems, but also on the development of the human brain.
5: And I will answer any questions for you afterwards. Okay. Hey, Max. Okay. Hey, Max, look. Okay, we're ready? Hi, sweetie.
2: Sandy and Joe Jacobson of Wayne State University have been studying IQ levels in children whose mothers had high levels of PCBs in their blood, mostly from eating Great Lakes fish. The Jacobsons have found a six-point IQ loss in those children who were heavily exposed to these chemicals in the womb.
5: There were over 300 children that were seen in our infant study, and we saw them again at four years and at 11 years. And we were very concerned to see would these effects persist, and unfortunately, they did. Put them together as quickly as you can.
2: This child is performing normally on a standard IQ test. But the participants in the Jacobson study did not. And we were, in fact, uh, quite surprised to see at age 11 when we
1: tested the children again that the effects, if anything, were clearer than they had been at the younger age. But the the evidence suggested that the damage that was done
2: prenatally uh, is quite persistent and, uh, as far as we can tell, permanent. While the Jacobsons caution that endocrine disruption cannot be proven as the cause for the IQ loss, PCBs are known hormone disruptors.
4: We know that some of these neurodevelopmental changes can be caused by altered alterations in the endocrine system. We know that some of these chemicals can cause those kinds of alterations in the endocrine system. So we're beginning to build the bridge. Chemical can alter endocrine system. Altered endocrine system can cause this effect. Therefore, chemical can cause this effect. That's the bridge that's being built in a number of different kinds of studies, but I don't think
8: that we've completed the span. When you look at an individual baby, the tendency is to look at the baby and say the life is in front of this child it's all there for this child child can do anything they want what the endocrine hi- disruptor hypothesis is saying is no, that may not be true mm-hmm. a little bit of potential intelligence may be shaved off where the child falls on the continuum of sexuality may have been shifted the immune system in the child may have been altered so that when you see the child the day it's born it may not be the child that it should have been
4: i think about what children are being exposed to every day most of which i have no control over my children particularly and so um, when i look at a group of children i think about you know is anything wrong with them because when i was their age something was wrong with me we just didn't know it so it is frightening and I do think about what the children of the 90s are being exposed to you know what is there another DES out there I think as parents we all worry about our children but I think we have to look at the world That our children are living in and realize that they have tremendous access to food, to education, that their lifespan is likely to be greater than ours. So while we may have concerns, and I'm not discounting that there, there may be real concerns, I don't think that we should be paralyzed by them or overly worried about what chemicals may be doing to
7: future generations. However, I'm concerned, for several reasons, that the ETSAC may end up recommending a program that is not cost-effective and will incur great costs, little if any benefit. That's
2: a, Pesticides uh, comprise a major class of suspected endocrine disruptors. As a representative for a trade association of pesticide companies, Greg Koontz worries that these small businesses will bear the brunt of any regulation.
7: To begin with, the whole problem of endocrine disruption does not appear to be nearly as great as some people were claiming a year ago. For example, the Tulane study performed by John McLaughlin had to be withdrawn a few months back because scientists at other universities, including uh, McLaughlin's own research team, were unable to replicate the results. We're concerned that there may be a a massive screening and testing program that's very costly, very time-consuming that overshoots so any problems, if any, that could be caused by interconnection. disruption.
1: And I don't think there's any evidence that suggests that
8: that's the case.
2: It has been hard to build a firm base of policy on the shifting sands of conflicting science. The breast cancer study that prompted Jerry Barish to act is a perfect example. When it could not be replicated on a larger scale, critics argued that it was one more reason to call the entire Stack process into question.
4: I think another misconception is that the legislation that created this process was enacted because of a single study. Uh, you just need to know that it's the body of literature that we are examining and that will be um, contribute to the deliberations.
7: The process is being rushed, and it should not be. This is something that requires some thought
2: the congressional mandate will not be easy. No endocrine disruptor screen has yet been approved for wide-scale use. The Edstack law does not give EPA any new powers to regulate these substances, and there are over 75,000 chemicals to be tested.
5: It's a problem that has forced me in my position to say that I think We need a Manhattan project, a Manhattan-like project. We have spent peanuts on this research up until now. We're so hell-bent on finding out what's going out in outer space. And we don't even know how the embryo develops. We truly don't. We don't know at what concentrations the hormones act in the developing embryo to tell the embryo how to develop. We're just breaking through on this now. Isn't that ridiculous? I think it's time we get a little more introspective now and start looking internally at how our internal systems work, the environment of our body, the environment in the room.
2: The administration has made endocrine disruption one of its top five environmental priorities and EdStack must have its screening process in place by the year 2000. But what then? Nearly 150 years have passed since John Snow dealt with a cholera germ he did not even know existed. But we now face a similar dilemma. At what point is there proof enough to act? And what action do we take?
1: I think it's very important for us to recognize that we are dealing with a hypothesis. And we still don't have definitive data um, on wide-scale populational effects. But it's also, there's no question in my mind that embryos are being affected. That there are populations of children and populations of wildlife that will never reach their full potential because of exposure to environmental contaminants. I truly believe that. The question is, is whether that cost is acceptable.
3: I, I think if you have similar problems on much less contaminated lakes, you might also want to look for other etiologies.
1: Oh, there's no question that you have to look at the full picture, but interestingly enough, if you actually have in a laboratory a causal study, you
8: can show that exposure to a certain kind of pesticide causes <laughs>
0: Go ahead and update you a little bit uh, in terms of what's happened, uh, again, since uh, the late 90s or early 2000. The EdStack process did complete, uh, and within the purview of the Food Quality Protection Act, there are about uh, half a dozen or so uh, approved screening methodologies. Uh, there is, on the EPA websites, uh, some of the background of endocrine disruption and how chemicals that are used in agriculture, at least, are, are screened for endocrine disruption uh, potential. Well, uh, as promised, what I will do for the the rest of uh, today's lecture uh, would be to uh, update you a little bit on what's happened since then in terms of some of the published literature, uh, collect some of the observations uh, that were uh, from 1980s and 1990s, as well as some in more recent uh, history. Uh, On this slide, what we have is uh, a, a listing of some of the major endocrine disruption observations that uh, pretty much got us to this point of concern about EDCs in the environment. Uh, uh, Cryptarchidism is uh, a condition of non-descended testicles, uh, obviously a a potential uh, endocrine disruption process there. It's been observed in the Florida panther. The Florida panther is an endangered and threatened species. Uh, at the top of the food chain uh, in that part of the country. There have also been uh, wildlife observations of small baculum in young male otters. Uh, the baculum is a hardened uh, penis bone uh, that uh, these uh, animals use in their reproductive processes. Uh, as you saw in the video, uh, the observation Lake Apopka of small penises, uh, these are contaminated water bodies in this particular lake. Uh, There was a tremendous amount of uh, pesticide, chlorinated hydrocarbon pesticide uh, contamination. Uh, There have been many observations in the published literature of sex reversal in fish and other uh, uh, forms of life. There have been observations in wildlife studies as well on altered social behavior in birds. In terms of the uh, human aspects of potential for endocrine disruption, there have been proposed proposals that EDCs, as you've heard, have contributed to various increases in uh, testicular cancer and hypospadias and some reported uh, declines in human sperm counts. The observations and debates uh, back and forth in terms of human impact uh, still continue. Some of the uh, observations that we've had uh, in the past five, six years uh, include some of the impacts of the chemicals that we use in our daily lives. Uh, As we've talked about in principles of environmental toxicology time to time, it's quite easy for the general public and for us as well to point fingers at the end of pipe uh, uh, polluters uh, when in fact, uh, quite often when it comes to some of these compounds, it's us uh, that are the polluters. An example for you here is antibiotic soap. Antibiotic soap, which uh, I'm sure most of us have used at some point in time, and perhaps uh, many of us actually prefer because of its uh, antibiotic activity and the public health implications of using this type of soap. There are two major compounds used in uh, antibiotic soap, uh, triclocarban and triclosan. These are antiseptic compounds, Uh, as it turns out when we analyze uh, and we need to start thinking about what happens when we flush, what happens when things go down the drain, and as it turns out these waters go to uh, typically municipal wastewater treatment plants. Uh, these plants have uh, state-of-the-art technology, but it is public health and sanitation technology. It is not designed, it is not a process designed to remove some of these trace bioactive compounds such as triclosan. So as it turns out, uh, triclosan does uh, actually survive wastewater treatment and get discharged either as the parent compound or as a metabolite uh, and USGS in uh, 2000 actually surveyed uh, several thousand waters across the United States, natural waters, and found that about 60% of these water resources had some level of triclosan contamination. Uh, This particular uh, compound is problematic. I've given the structure down in the bottom, and uh, many of you can actually uh, identify this as being something that's uh, relatively close to dioxins but also has uh, an estradiol sort of shape and structure. In fact, uh, this particular compound and some of its metabolites uh, have now uh, well-studied and well-known estrogenic potential as it turns out uh, in Lake Mead which is the primary water resource for a good part of Nevada including Las Vegas there is a wastewater treatment plant series up at the upper reaches of Lake Mead and uh water uh drinking water resource pumping uh from the lower reaches and in fact uh triclosan and its byproducts uh, do appear in this water body uh, about uh, two years ago, three years ago, there were observations of the fish populations in Lake Mead uh, that have been linked to estrogenic effects and impacts of triclosan in that particular water body. In terms of the published literature, I'm going to go through uh, several uh, uh, abstracted uh, identifications of some endocrine disruption that has occurred in uh, observations in uh, clinical laboratory environments. Uh, This is an incident of an observation, this was uh, published in... uh, environmental health perspectives uh, and this is in fish and these are uh, Japanese Madaka fish they're shown here in this particular pic- picture uh, there was an observation of complete permanent and functional male-to-female sex reversal in this particular fish after a one-time embryonic exposure to DDT Uh, This is uh, of concern. Fish are known for their flexibility in terms of secondary sexual characteristics and their responsiveness uh, to uh, endocrine disruption, and they have been uh, involved in uh, several laboratory studies. In another case, uh, this is the amphibian's frogs, and these are African clawed frogs. Uh, This was an observation of hemaphroditism and demasculization. This was using the herbicide atrazine. Atrazine uh, is a common groundwater contaminant in what's referred to as the corn and soybean belt uh, in the Midwestern United States. In this particular, finding atrazine at a level of 0.1 uh, parts per billion uh, actually induced this hermaphroditism, and uh, it demasculinized the larynges, uh, the vocalization uh, uh, part of uh, frogs croaking, uh, uh, in the exposed males. Uh, they suffered a tenfold decrease in testosterone levels when exposed uh, to 25 part per billion atrazine in their water. Another observation, there was complete uh, male-to-female uh, sex reversal observed in a high uh, number of incidences. This is an interesting piece of work because it's done by a colleague, uh, Jim Nagler, here at the University of Idaho. This is on a reach of uh, the Columbia River uh, in this particular population, subpopulation of salmon. Uh, there was uh, essentially a high incidence of a genetic marker for the Y chromosome uh Essentially, what was found in this particular study that uh, was that uh, 84% of the egg-laying fish uh, in this particular reach were uh, not female. They were, in fact, genetic males, but they had all of the apparatus to lay eggs. Uh, if, in fact, we have feminized males in this particular population uh, that uh, are uh, producing uh, fertilized eggs, we have uh, or lose the ability to have uh, pure XX females, and we start uh, coming up with just the statistical basis of having XYs or abnormal YY genotypes in the uh, progeny. And so this is a particularly problem, problematic in terms of the future uh, genetic makeup, chromosomal makeup of the populations of these kind of fish. Another uh, published observation, this is a change in the sex ratio uh, in oysters, uh, observation of hermaphroditism and reproductive failure as well. Oysters uh, do have uh, the ability to switch uh, sexes, and they do this in response to population pressure, but this is not anything that happens uh, overnight uh, in terms of uh, these particular uh, animals. In this particular case, uh, nonylphenol uh, is a compound. It's a compound that's found as a detergent residue. It was found to induce long-terms and transgenerational transgenerale- impacts in the Pacific oyster. Uh, it uh, was shown that uh, environmentally relevant concentrations uh, actually changed the sex ratio of male-to-female oysters. Uh, it increased the incidence of hermaphroditism up to 30%. Uh, and in the next generation, gamete viability was up to 100% mortality. So significant impacts in this particular study. There are also uh, some concerns that uh, in this lock and key model, that, uh, because we are dealing with chemicals uh, that uh, f- do uh, have the capacity to be these false keys, that these processes, these chemicals can have additive hormonal effects. Uh, what we found in uh, this particular study was in an, in an analysis of a yeast estrogen screen. this is uh, a screen that actually is uh, uh, targeted for use in endocrine disruption screening. That, in fact, uh, that there was observed a combined additive effect of the eleven xenoestrogens uh, in this particular study, in other words, uh, if in fact the concentration is uh, perhaps ten parts per billion that has the the uh, endocrine disruption effect, you could have. 10 different chemicals uh, at uh, a uh, relative concentration of about one part per million each. Each of those different chemicals having an additive effect, obviously some more potent than others, but these combined effects, these additive effects, have been demonstrated in laboratory studies. There are also some confounding effects, uh, estrogens uh, and estrogenic uh, disruption Uh, can be by false keys, but also blocking keys, keys that don't essentially activate uh, the hormone receptor, but in essence block it. Uh, And so we found uh, classes of compounds, including the polycyclic musks. The polycyclic musks uh, are used in very fragrance and perfume applications. When we look in natural waters, because of uh, what we use in deodorants, body sprays, uh, perfumed products, uh, these chemicals, these, uh, polycyclic, uh, musks, AHTN, HHCB actually appear in natural waters. Uh, these are confounding in that they can have an anti-estrogenic impact, the opposite of the, uh, disruptive activity that we talked about in estrogenic substances. It's of greater interest, and it was introduced in the video to examine uh, the uh, trends in human hypospadias. Human hypospadias is identified, and you saw some pictures, uh, and this is an incomplete uh, masculinization of the reproductive uh, tract in, in males. The left-hand graph uh, in this particular slide, where you see the left re- the red line. Uh, down on the x axis, it's the year of birth from 1970 to the late 1990s, and this is the rate per 10,000 births of uh, hypospadias. Now, births include male and female. Obviously, hypospadias or incomplete masculinization only happening in, in uh, males. But the statistics show that the overall rate has doubled in the U.S. population over the past 30 years. Uh, This work done by the Centers for Disease Control is particularly disturbing uh, for those of you that uh, are around children or perhaps in the medical profession uh, or, like me, uh, have a young relative, that actually was born with this condition. This is a particularly disturbing uh, situation uh, and uh, this is something that gives us uh, cause uh, and concern. There are other uh, analyses. This is a rat study where in fact, um, they were trying to examine uh, the rates of uh, various uh, hypospadias occurrences in a comparative toxicology test model. This was with rats. And uh, what, in fact, was observed with various types of compounds that are potentially have been identified as uh, endocrine disruptors, estrogenic impacts. You can see that the percent of the offspring with hypospadias in the rat model uh, can be increased up to 100% with dosing of various chemicals of estrogenic concern. Uh, These sorts of uh, clinical findings, these sorts of uh, epidemiological findings, uh, and uh, these laboratory studies give us great pause in terms of the future. It gives us pause within the context of the precautionary principle that we have talked about at several instances here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology. This is a situation where the preponderance of data suggests that there are chemicals out there that can have impacts in terms of human physiology, our secondary sexual characteristics, as well as having environmental impacts on the potential for populations of wildlife to have successful reproduction. This should give you great pause and concern as well in terms of the future that you will inherit There are processes, there are many concerned scientists. We have to approach this in terms of proving this hypothesis on a case-by-case basis when it comes to chemicals. But obviously we have learned in terms of controlled laboratory studies as well as field observations that the potential for endocrine disruption and estrogenic effects does in fact exist and we should be highly cautious about the outcome and the introduction of new chemicals into our environment. With that, next time, uh, we'll start uh, transferring into the realms of uh, monitoring and managing uh, environmental chemicals. What's the regulatory structure that we put to play in terms of environmental law? How do we accumulate very high-quality data uh, to make those